1: Drive Live and The Legal Hour, our guest today. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Ludmilla Yamalaba is back with us. Always nice to see you. Appreciate you coming back in. Great to be here. Good to have you. So let's start today with this tenancy property questionnaire question. I know that sounds like a phrase that you think, how on earth could that be a legal question? But it is.
0: Yes, I've got it in front of me now. Do you want go me on. to go? I think this is really good because sometimes we really, you get so many texts at the end of the program and we can't get to them. Mm. So this one is one that we have already. And it's quite an interesting one. And it says I've recently renewed my tenancy contract and I've been asked to fill out a new form issued by the property management company sounds normal so far but it asks for details like my religion names and ages of occupants their passport numbers relationship status profession company name and address bank details, name and account number, phone numbers, email, etc. well I don't mind filling out those details of the co-occupants, that's my husband and son, I'm wondering if it's required by law to fill in the other details. Is it a new mandate from RERA? And um, these are the details we're often warned about for phishing attacks. I'm not comfortable sharing the same with a property management company.
2: Uh, very good question. In fact, we've even called Rear and the Land Department to seek their latest clarification on this issue. And in short, it's been the same answer, which is there's no law that sets out uh, this requirement or lack of this requirement. Uh, but, um, but certainly this is a prudent practice, at least, to, to share some type of information with the property management company. So, for example... Uh, details of the occupants and their ages and per- perhaps even copies of, of their passports only because so the management company knows who the occupants are. So you can see how, at least in practical terms, it may be useful for the management company and for the tenants as well to have that de- those sort of details shared. Now, obviously, with um, so so remember, there's no law, but there are practical uh, reasons for why uh, why both parties would want to share or should want to have their information stored somewhere in a in um, a centralized database.
0: Even for the safety aspect of it, if if anything were to ever happen, you know how many people are in a building. You can that part makes absolute sense. But some of the other things, they seem a little well. Indeed, well,
2: I will tell you, there is absolutely no reason to ask for a bank account. It's uh, usually it's the other way around. It's it's the tenant. That should have the bank account, for example, of the landlord or the management company. If they need to make payments, it's very rare. If it's if not unheard of at this point, that the management company actually would be paying money to, uh, to the tenant. Therefore, what's the reason to give a bank account? Uh, similarly, with regards to religion and uh, other personal questions like that, I don't see any reason for, uh, for demanding or requesting that sort of information or benefit for sharing that information. Uh, So, obviously, this particular management company has gone overboard, but also there's another element to it. So, in this case, the listener is a tenant. So, usually, that sort of information is actually shared with the landlord and... uh, I would say a better business practice would be for the management company to request that information from the landlord ultimately it's the landlord that has the, the long standing right to the to those properties and therefore it'd be better business practice and the better long term practice for the management companies to establish contact with the landlord and in fact place the burden of that sort of documentation on the landlord and not the tenants so therefore in that case and obviously when the tenant signs an agreement with the landlord theres that exchange of information that goes um, it goes around just by by virtue of signing an agreement and entering into that relationship such as copies of passports and names of the occupants and um, whatever other relevant needs, phone phone numbers and and perhaps permanent address and emails so that information should already reside with the landlord so i think it's much more efficient uh, to for the management companies to request that information from the landlords uh, but in this case, if the, 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 there's a practical nuance in the event tenants do not dis, uh, do not share the information with the management company. W- could there be some sort of penalties? But remember, in this case, the management company, it's, it's an interesting, legally speaking, it's an interesting dynamic because there is no contractual relationship between the management company and the tenants. So therefore, there's really no legal grounds upon which that management company can request for the tenants to produce that information. Whereas with regards to the landlords... Presumably, at least the association that's comprised of the landlords has an agreement with the tenancy, uh, with the management company. So, therefore, by virtue of that agreement, there could be a legal obligation to share that information.
0: So. If- if for example this person was presented with the choice look either you don't renew or you fill in this document what what can they actually do about it I you know you see, said it's not legal but uh, yeah
2: what? and that's a great question which you said when you don't renew but the renewal does not happen with a management company the renewal happens with the landlord so whose choice is it to renew or not to renew it's not the management companies unless there's obviously some sort of an agreement between the management company and the landlord that that becomes a condition but again it cannot be the management company that would impose that condition it has to be the landlord and uh Let's say in the event it is the landlord also demands that sort of information again by virtue of the tenant landlord relationship that that information should already be with the landlord and um, legally speaking they cannot ask for anything other than you know n- anything more such as bank accounts and even religion uh, so therefore if if they insist. It becomes a personal choice for the tenants if, uh, because it may be a bit overburdening and overbearing to be in, in a place that is run by a landlord like that. So it's a personal choice whether they want to stay or to move on.
1: I mean, you advocate, generally speaking, you advocate communication with your landlord as much as you can. And surely this should be a two-way thing. If a landlord has your personal details, your passport copy, uh, list of tenants, shouldn't you have at least the, the landlord's passport copy? Isn't that reasonable?
2: And a very um, very good comment because legal, uh, logically what you said is correct. Mm-hmm. In practice, however, too often there is always a middle person or a middle entity, and that middle entity is either a management company or in most cases it's a real estate broker. And often what real estate brokers want to i'm not sure if it's wanted uh, for tenants to believe or actually are instructed to communicate this to the tenants that the landlord does not wish to have a direct relationship with the tenant i will tell you from a logical and even legal legal standpoint that just does not make sense because if you own property and you're renting the property to uh, to someone else who will ultimately be there for um, perhaps many many years wouldn't you logically want to have a relationship direct relationship with that tenant it's not to say that for every small request and questions they should run to you and that's for that you can appoint an agent but whenever you initiate that relationship or renew it you should as a landlord you should want to have the direct contact so on what basis uh, brokers claim that the landlords do not want that contact i'm not sure but i think it's very um it's very to me it's very suspect and it's illogical and there's another element as part of this sort of tri-party arrangement if you will is that often in in the agreement, in the lease agreement, there is also a clause for a, a renewal. Upon renewing, uh, renewing the agreement, there is X amount of fee that's paid to the uh, to the broker. Mm-hmm. So, let's say if you renew from year to year and you stay in the same property, so the broker actually included often there's a, a there's a term in the agreement that the brokerage fee, the renewal fee, is owed to the broker every year. Well, that's an interesting legal dynamic because that can only be enforceable if the broker is a party to that agreement. And in 99.9% of the cases, I, I have yet to see a, actually a single document where the broker would be the party to that lease. And if they're not a party to the lease, then they cannot, they cannot legally demand that that renewal fee is paid to them. And in fact, recently there was a um, there was a case by RDC, the Rent Dispute Committee, where they held that that particular clause is unenforceable because it does not comprise a part of the annual rental rental value.
1: I've talked about this a lot of times before. That happened a few years ago with me, and the guy obviously thought, well, I'll try it on. And I just said, well, no, you haven't done anything. And he went, okay. And it was it was just trying it on. So in 99.9% of cases, you shouldn't be paying a renewable fee to a broker.
2: Well, indeed, but you see, but the complication happens when you have that particular clause included in the agreement, and most sure. people see it and they feel responsible that I it's in there. They've initialled
1: it or signed indeed, it. Indeed, but
2: remember that that clause would be binding on that person vis-a-vis the landlord because the contract is between the landlord and the tenant. But as far as their agent is involved or is concerned, he's not or she is not party to that agreement. Therefore, they cannot legally rely on that contract for the payment of that fee. They may want to have a separate agreement with the landlord or the tenant, but as part of that lease agreement, that's not they're not a party or they're not privy to it.
1: Okay. So finally, on this, when you come to uh, renew a property and somebody says, "I need more information." what is reasonable or when you first sign to lease a property what is reasonable in terms of the information that you deliver passport copies etc
2: sure so from let's start from the tenant's perspective if it's an individual you you would want to give as a tenant you would want to give copies of your passport and you want to make sure to include in the lease who the occupants will be so let's say the agreement could be between the landlord and that one tenant but there could be additional occupants and it might be in the interest of the tenant to actually have those occupants included just for uh, consistency and for um, for clarity's sake. Uh, so copies of all um, of all the occupants or copies of passports of all the occupants uh, and obviously just if you give copies of the passports alone, they will include all the relevant information such as the details of the names and the spelling of the names, which is actually important in this country uh, because of the translation and um, the passport copies. Then you'd want to provide them with a phone number and an email address and ultimately you'd want to even perhaps as a tenant give the landlord a permanent address wherever it is that you come from, just in the event that that relationship somehow fizzles away and at some point it may be beneficial for the landlord to be able to reach the tenant now that's as far as the tenant is concerned other than that well copies of Emirates id is also not bad practice and other than that there isn't really much more that you, as a tenant that you should you should you should give to the landlord now as far as the landlord is landlord is concerned again there is a, a difference between a, an individual and a corporate so let's say if the landlord is an individual then it's the same thing, a copy of the landlord's passport. If there are multiple, pass- uh, multiple owners, then copies of all the uh, passport uh, passports of all the owners should be submitted. And most importantly, the title deed. And then the title deed before, and this is my recommendation because we've actually had this question come up a few weeks on the radio, and, and um, this is not uncommon, is that before you sign the contract and before you part with your money, even if it's as a deposit, make sure that that particular title deed is updated because there have been cases, Cases, in particular recently where the tenant will, sign, will uh, signed up uh, to a lease and paid a deposit, including the first six months of, of rent, only to find out that that particular property was actually already deregistered from that landlord's name, was actually auctioned off. Um, and, that's, and that's so it's a little too late because they've already parted with their money. So before you sign any agreements, as a tenant, you want to see a copy of the updated title. To do that... Uh, d- remember just a copy of the title deed will not necessarily give you all the uh, necessary information. The land department routinely will stamp a copy of the title deed with current date to confirm that that title deed is still is still registered to the same people. It would be the landlord who would get that or the broker uh, but that 's a very important document before you do anything else and now I will st- actually start with that document because often people who claim to be owners are in fact not owners. And there uh, representatives uh, acting on behalf of owners and acting on behalf of power of attorney. So if you start, start with the title deed, then you'll right away know who the, the owner is or the owners. And then you go from there and ask them for the, uh, for the information. But most importantly, include, in addition to passport copies and title deed, contact details. Because you know, your agents come and go, and that relationship, again, is between you and the landlord. So you want to be able to figure out a way to get in touch with the landlord, uh, landlord directly.
1: Ludmila Yamalava is here from Yamalava and Plethka. She's the legal expert today on the legal hour. If you have a question for Ludmila, text it through Dinesh, for example. Uh, your question is coming soon, 4001, via the free app, or you can call if you would prefer. Eyes is at the phone today, 423-1010. This is Drive Live
2: on Dubai I-103.8.
1: Drive Live and The Legal Hour, our legal expert and also a human being is Ludmilla Yamalaba. I've just said to you off air there, uh, Ludmilla, and I apologise. I feel like we just treat you as the expert and throw things at you uh, and never let you be yourself. But I maybe... know, I
2: haven't gotten any flowers, chocolates, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's
1: dinner
0: invitations. invitations.
1: Um, yeah, the more, more you fish for those, the more they don't happen on this show. <laughs> Thank <laughs> <There's>, you.
2: <laughs> That's a really nice text
0: in from Matt, though, saying, I love Ludmilla. She's so cool. That's very kind. Thank you, Matt.
1: Yeah, Yeah, a friend of mine said that about you on Friday night no, no, yeah, actually uh, a of yours i appreciate um, it uh, lots of questions in for you let's go to the text lines but if you do just a reminder if you do have a question for ludmilla get it in as early as possible rather than having to do the the one word two word answers at the end of the yeah. program
0: if you do want to text for to yeah. um if you do want to call even because we quite like the phone calls too 423 mm-hmm. or you can text us for or use the free messenger app as well
1: all right, then. Uh, so the first one here, let's do dinner. Hi, I'll be taking possession of my off-plan property in Abu Dhabi in September. I plan to rent it out directly without using an agent. Other than the lease agreement itself, what documents do I need to have from the tenant and what checks? And this kind of adds on to the topic we were talking about before the break. What checks do I need to carry out on the tenant? And I suppose, how do you carry out those checks? That's
2: a very good question. In the UAE, as of now we don't really have a sort of database where you could check your tenant's history. In other jurisdictions, that service is available, and so that would be what what you would do in, in those countries. But here, we don't have that yet. There is a credit bureau that, um, that is progressing and developing further word that and that's information that is a av- financial information that's available on um, on people in the UAE to banks and financial institutions but that's basically the closest that comes in terms of uh, credit check but as far as tenant and tenancy history there there's no database so what you would want to do is um, and this is in fact I'll tell you this exactly why the practice of requesting posated checks or payments upfront exists mm. it's because there isn't really at this point there isn't really a certain way to confirm that whoever it is you're transacting with has a solid enough history that you can rely on without requesting upfront payments so so here you, to to compensate if you will the lack of that information or that certainty on the tenant landlords always request or most of the time or, although it's changing now uh, request payments upfront, yeah. so to mitigate their damages in the event something happens so but otherwise dinesh pa- passport copies uh, visa definitely ask for copies of their uae visas and um, and Emirates ID, phone numbers, email addresses, and um, if they will be living with anyone in particular so if it, it matters to you you want to get copies of those as well but in terms of but that's just basic information you want to include in the contract but in terms of what you can find out about the tenant you may ask uh, for references from their previous landlords that's practice that's not yet quite developed here though it is um, it's developed with regards to employees but and companies but not necessarily with with tenants but certainly is not unusual uh, or abnormal to ask those, um, those questions um, otherwise there's is isn't really much more you can do, and so the only way to mitigate potentially unreliable tenants is to ask for uh, for payments up front. And this is also why there's also a deposit in addition to advanced payments. Uh, there's a deposit in the event department the is ruined. You and you can hope notice. that
1: that relationship will grow, and you get to know the person, and then trust them. But what about something like, you can go and get a copy of your credit report now for... 110 dirhams, I think it costs. Would it be reasonable for Dinesh Dinesh to say, uh, I'd like to see a copy of your credit.
2: Absolutely, because remember, a tenancy tenancy relationship is just like any other commercial contract. And so what's a contract? A contract is nothing, it's not a rocket science, it's nothing too complicated. It's just basically an agreement between in this case two parties the landlord and the tenant and so and parties as as, as part of that contract can demand whatever information whatever documents they um, they want and obviously the other the other side may or may not agree to uh, to disclose that information and so absolutely if credit report is available these days ask for it and if the tenant does not give it to you then you just have to it will become a personal choice but even then with the credit report what information does that give you it may tell you about their financial financial um, uh, transactions but may not necessarily tell you whether they're good or bad tenant but it certainly is an additional point of information that might be helpful
1: but i suppose it goes to the willingness of somebody to provide information and that that kind of tells its own story doesn't it if somebody says oh no problem i'll send it to you and they send it you you tend towards the this is possibly a trustworthy person if you get the why do you need that i don't want to give you that you know the alarm bell well
2: it's interesting as you say that logically logically yes but what what happens in here but this is again it happens in most of the places when you are being confronted with a question that you've never heard before this sort of abnormal or uh, unusual not abnormal unusual Mm -hmm. then the reaction is often very defensive and um and and so this could be well why do you ask you nobody else has asked us this question and this we get all the time even as lawyers Uh, so you might get that reaction but that's not just say if, if there is justification and reasonable explanation for why you would want that information and if the parties are reasonable and they want to to transact then well there's no there's no harm in in exchanging that information but by equally so and this is what's important is that you should as a tenant should request that same sort of information or uh, equivalent information from the landlord because often what happens here it's a very much a one way street. I want all this, but you're not really entitled to anything from me okay. so
1: uh, fair enough. Ludmilla Malova is from Yamalava and Plethkit. She is our legal expert this afternoon. If you have a question, text it in as early as possible. 4001, the free app to text for no money or call it in on 423 1010. More questions to come, plus we're going to be looking at commercial transactions, beginning with what is a commercial transaction, and we will move from there. No matter your preferred communication, stay in touch with Drive Live only on Dubai Eye. 103.8. Ludmilla is here. Ludmilla Yamalava from Yamalava and Pletka. She's our legal expert. Somebody texts in and says, Ludmilla is a great contributor to the success of this show along with the hosts. It's more Ludmilla, to be honest, but thanks for that. Really appreciate her efforts to provide as much information as possible within the duration of the show. Which is a good point because often, Ludmilla, the, the information is quite hard to take in, isn't it? Because you need to look at balancing every side of an argument. Let's put it that way. Yeah, thank you I, very I know much. It's a hard, but I nice appreciate the compliment. Appreciate that. Uh, Borhan, I think, is on the line now. Borhan, good of you to stay on hold. We will get to you in the end. Good to have you on. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, so your issue is, if I'm right here, you've paid a percentage, small percentage of a property, but you have changed your mind. Is that right?
3: Yes. Uh, I was on a purchase. I, paid, I put in 1%, which is equal to about 6,000 and some dirhams. And then I changed my mind. I found another property. And... Um, I'm asking for my money back, or at least part of it, and they're saying no, none of them is refunded uh, as per their regulations, and I don't know if that's true or not.
2: Okay, let me just ask you a follow-up question. So you signed a document with someone, and was it with with a landlord or a
3: broker? Uh, It is actually, it is a new development. Um, It is the sales person for, the development is not being, is not built yet. And they are, they're not going to be delivering it until the fourth quarter of next year. So uh, I did sign uh, a paper for the deposit that I put in the actual deposit and didn't intend to buy, but I did not sign any type of contracts or anything like that.
2: Okay, well, usually a deposit, whatever document you sign, that states the amount of the deposit is is also a contract. A contract doesn't need to be very uh, many many pages or uh, look very important or uh, well drafted. Any document where there's some sort of an exchange of um, services or you know, monetary value that goes on, it's it's a contract. So whatever it is you sign would be a contract. So now there are several uh, several comments to your uh, to your situation. One, it very it very much important how what is it that you paid and how that's in other words how is it defined in that that piece of paper that you don't think is a contract but actually is and that is is it a deposit or is it a reservation amount because and that becomes a legal uh, a legal question for the court to decide whether for example if it's a deposit and then a deposit usually means that it's a deposit towards future payments And um, so the courts may decide that at least in the event that, under circumstances where you've uh, you've decided you've changed your mind, that part of that deposit should be uh, should be refunded to you. But usually, if it's if it's drafted as a reservation fee, the reservation fee is most of the time by courts construed as non-refundable. Um, so, uh, so that's just that's kind of that's the legal interpretation of of, of so called you know the down payment. Now, with regards to the comment that you were told about by, sounds up like the developer or by the agent that it's not uh, it's not not uh, consistent with the regulations to refund that that's not true. There is no regulation that that requires for um, uh, for investors to. To, for that particular first payment be non-refundable. So it's not a regulation, but it's, it's more of a company policy. So it so, sounds like in your case, a developer uh, naturally would want to adopt that policy as to so as to protect themselves from, from having to refund it. But I'll tell you, in practical terms, because it's 6,000 dirhams and it's a lot of money, so unless that contract clearly states that this is, uh, this is a deposit that can be refundable in the event whatever conditions might take place, It may just not be worthwhile for you financially or even legally to try to
3: pursue this. So do do I have legally any legs to stand on, or how can I get that, a copy? Because, excuse me, they did not give me a copy of that. How can I get it if, if I request it from them? Most likely they're not going to give it to me. You
2: made a great comment that I'd love to, once again, to reiterate over and over and over again. This is very very common practice in the UAE. Whenever, whenever, in particular, individuals sign documents or, and then give money, they don't take copies of the documents that they yeah, sign.
3: I asked for one.
2: And well, you, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't. Have, I mean, I don't. I don't mean to to sound critical, but this is just. Again, often we hear this from other parties. Well, this is this is confidential. Believe it or not, we've heard this so many times. In particular, for example, with banks, we've represented clients that wanted to take. A credit from the banks and signed all sorts of uh, documents when we asked for copies of those the banks said well these are confidential What well, cannot be, logically cannot be confidential if it has your signature on it yeah. uh, but unfortunately that seems to be the party line a lot um, here and therefore uh, you Basically, people like yourself accept it, um, thinking that this is, you know, this is either legally mandated or somehow the standard practice. Uh, but my 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 recommendations to anyone who gives any kind of money, you should always take um, a copy of whatever it is that or uh, receipts of payment and copies of checks and certainly copies of whatever whatever documents you sign yeah. so at this point can you do anything you can request and uh, ob- I mean, did you pay by cash or bank transfer what was it
3: i did by card card transactions so i have a receipt okay. and a credit from the bank or at least at least the, <coughs> excuse me uh, a trail that it is from the bank that it has been plus the actual receipt
2: yeah, so at least that would be if this were if, if the amount was more s- substantial i 'd say even though six thousand is a lot of money, but i 'm talking more in terms of the the legal costs that you would have to pay if you, if you were to take this um, to court. So if the amount were substantial, you could rely on that evidence and uh, as proof that there was a relationship with, between you and the developer and that you gave them that money. And then it would be up to them to, to prove to the court what the conditions for that payment uh, were. And as part of that, they would have to release that document which you signed, which they now do not give you a copy of. Right. Uh, but at this point, honestly, I just say just... All you can do is just from
1: just the, eat it. Well,
2: well, no, 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 no. You just just speak with them again and and see if you can plead your case. At least ask for um, for a part of of that deposit back but in practical terms if they say no i would not recommend that you take legal route because it just will not be worthwhile
3: for you yeah to yeah no i was planning
1: it. Yeah. Beforehand, there may be the threat of legal action but uh, i hope you can the case or perhaps get but you can't you, you can there.
2: you can report them or you can at least approach riera and see if if RERA might get involved with them. but mm. again depending on how that document was structured it may be that it was is it was drafted or defined as a reservation fee and in many cases reservation fee then RERA may read as well this is you know this is non refundable and in many any cases, to be honest with you, it is actually drafted that way.
3: Mm. All right, well thank you so much for your uh, for your time and for your advice, oh, appreciate
1: great. it. Well then, good, good luck and good Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you so much. Uh, that's one issue, lots of texts coming in, lots of questions. Let's go to yeah, oh, Jason's there's a
0: There's a question. good message from Jason, quite a few elements to it, Ludmilla, so I'll kick off with this part. Um, he's got a friend, um, she's married, worked as a cabin crew, she's fallen pregnant and has approached her HR department. They've said, look, after four months you're not allowed to fly. So um, they've looked for ground staff positions and they said there's none available. HR have then said she won't be paid from the fourth month of pregnancy when she's unable to fly till after she returns from maternity leave so they're giving her 45 days and um, she's able to do what she wants in this period she can go overseas and Jason's asking can they legally not pay her for five months so this isn't the maternity leave this is the interim period between her being four months pregnant and when the baby's due and the maternity leave kicks in
2: uh, yes, they can because of the nature of her position as a as an air hostess. Obviously, your physical state is is is, is a, an, an essential element of your job, and so therefore, if the company's policy is that you cannot fly after four months of pregnancy, then well, that just that's just part of the job, and you can understand why. Um so, it sounds like the company tried to find an alternative position, but we're not able to find it. So, what they're doing? So, you see, in short, what they're giving or. Uh, giving an offering it sounds is, is legal and fair uh, fair in a sense of they could just um, just terminate her and said well this is we don't have a position for you right now and this so therefore we're terminating you and we'll pay you 45 days because by law right now it, it is a 45 day maternity leave uh, so and after that so what they're offering is they're offering us a non um, unpaid leave and they're keeping sounds like they're keeping her on their visa and allowing her to do whatever she wants to do uh, but they're just not paying her they um, they can not pay her because um, in the uae under the labor law you get paid for for what for the work that you do um so in other words if you're not working you're not getting paid if it's the company that's making you not work um, but still keeping you on a contract that they may be required to to pay you but in this particular case because after four months it's it, you know it's not really the company that's making you uh, that's uh, that's prohibiting or does not have a job for you. It's just that your circumstances have changed where by the company does not have a job for you. So but it's really more attributable to you versus the company. So let's say if all of a sudden the company didn't have a position for for you because uh, they, they've downsized. And then they asked the same thing. They said, oh, you can go over five months and then you can come back. In that case, yes, you could demand payment during those four, uh, five months. But in this case, it's um, that's, that's not that situation. Just so unfortunately, it sounds like this is basically the best you can get.
0: So just a bit of background. He, he's come back and said, look, she's worked for the company for over two years. She has an unlimited contract. Is there any way there could be some kind of um, detail in the contract? Because obviously, if it's air hostess, People that are married do fall pregnant so maybe there's something in the contract that could be looked at. Is that a possibility? Does she have any legal recourse if for example it says we look to find you a replacement role whilst you are unable to fly? Could that kind of a clause mean that she does have some recourse?
2: Well, yes and no. There could be that uh, if there were obviously a, a clause that where the company um, promises to find a job or that in, during that period of time, then obviously that that could be that uh, that particular uh, clause could be relied on as binding. But however, the way you drafted it or you just sort of phrased it, it, we, you know, they, they, it sounds like the company actually fulfilled that particular promise. And that is they tried to look, they just w- weren't able to find
0: If, just for example, um, maybe there's previous um, colleagues where one or two of them have been, there've been positions found where they don't have to fly. Could this be something that's looked at? If she says you've you found this alternative employment for the five months for person X, Y, and Z, why is it different for me?
2: Well, in theory, you could claim that, but um, the company has the right to um, um, to hire whoever they want for whatever position they want, so legally, you cannot force them to give you some other position or to treat you the same way they treated someone else um, so it's it, you can make that argument, but be prepared that legally speaking you don 't really you cannot really rely on it. Uh, and therefore it may be that things will come to a crossroads and then the, t- the the relationship will sour, and at that point they can terminate you. And in that case you could, for example, argue arbitrary dismissal, which is the three months of full salary. But beyond that, there is nothing else in the UAE law that you can you can claim in addition to the arbitrary dismissal, such as, for example, discriminatory uh, termination and discriminatory practices. Unlike other uh, countries, we don't have any additional benefits beyond the arbitrary dismissal of three months.
1: Okay. Ludmilla Yamanova with the uh, legal uh, answers this afternoon. Um, is this only for real estate questions? I have a problem with my credit card uh, to do with payments. Can I call? You are very welcome to call. So 431010 is the number. 4001 uh, or via the free app. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai Eye 1038 FM. Strive Live, is the Legal Hour. Ludmilla Yamalava is here answering your questions today. Just a note, there has been a five-car accident. Michelle mentioned uh, the red line towards Abu Dhabi uh, on the map. This is opposite uh, an Emirates petrol pump. This is Zayed Road, Abu Dhabi bound. There has been an accident in the area. If you can avoid it, um, please try and do so. That's the latest that we have. More traffic just after uh, the news at 6 o'clock. Um, let's get back to the Legal Hour. Ludmilla Yamalava. Oliver is here Legal Hour on Drive Live Question NL2 you've got one there this is interesting I think this is not just about real estate this programme it's general legal discussion Yes, yeah, you uh, you've filming. got to be
0: fast if you want the question you've got to call up or text in you so do. that's that's how that's what drives what we talk about so if you've got a question it doesn't have to be about real estate it can be over anything this one's from AA this is quite an interesting one they say what's the rule with photography in public places so for example using a GoPro while off-roading in the desert or during the weekend motorcycle ride this person sounds like they've got a very exciting life Um, motorcycle ride how is this different to a tourist with a camera and do you need to get permission for doing
2: this in the UAE uh, so this could be a fairly complicated uh, topic, so I will try to focus on things that can be answered on air uh, in the short period of time that we have. So there are two elements to photography. One is taking photographs of particular subjects, and two is w- the use of those photographs or or videos uh, at a later stage. And so those are very important, uh, two, two separate elements to this question. So in terms of Taking photography in the UAE, and then just like in most other countries, there are certain subjects that are off limits for photography. So, for example, and this is very, uh, this is very um, clear, in, and it's been announced many times in the UAE that um, airports, anything around the airspace, that's off limit for photography. So, anything, in, in general, and this is again, this exists in all other countries, anything that's sort of of government uh, interest, of government importance, uh, then you need to be very mindful that's, that's basically that basically those particular subjects are off limit. Uh, also. So anything that could be of personal, personal um, interest to someone else, you also have to be very careful because those are also off limits. So, for example, taking photographs of someone else without consent or peeking in into their, let's say, your villa while you're driving in the desert, uh, all those things, again, because that's, um, that's under the privacy law. You cannot take photos or you cannot document uh, interest of, personal interest of others because that would violate their privacy. Now, there are obviously many other things that you can't document and you, or you can, you can take photographs off, but I, sometimes it's not clear whether it's, whether it's white, white, white and black in terms of what can be photographed or not, but just general rule, anything that's sort of government-related uh, or related to privacy can be construed as, as private and stay away from that. Now, in terms of desert and, and bushes and you know the kind of nature, there's nothing that's, you know, those subjects in themselves are not, are not illegal, but, um, but, but you, they can become, for example, if you then post those pictures of videos, uh, and with comments or commentary that might be offensive or might be um, somehow might be misrepresentative um, of um, you know, whatever the, the basically either those photographs or somehow might portray a particular the you know, country or certain certain things in the country in, in unfavorable light. So then that could pe- could become uh, illegal. So be very mindful about what you do with the photographs, because remember there were a few years ago there was even an incident where there was a road ro- uh, road rage um, uh, in Dubai and somebody basically there was a bit of like a physical altercation and someone photographed that or videoed that and then they posted that particular uh, footage online so that is so taking that footage in of itself was not illegal but posting on social media was because the idea here and this is the um, uh, so the, the logic is that the authority says if you want if you want to bring something to our attention bring it to our attention not a social media but let us be the arbiters in terms of what should be leaked out and how these incidents should be addressed but anything that doesn't really have that kind of element obviously then you know, it's, it's it is, like you said, it's normal tourism. You could be driving along Sheikh Zayed Road and taking pictures of Burj Khalifa.
1: Mm. So if you were, I don't know, you were in a stomach-churning squealy moment, cresting a sand dune in your 4x4, nobody's worried about that particularly. Indeed. But if yeah. you were to be unfavorable in some way, you've got to be very careful with social media. But, you know, it is common sense very often, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. Oh, but yeah.
2: otherwise, no. its I mean, this is, a, this is a country that's very welcoming of tourists, obviously. And so mm. and we have a lot of tourist-worthy destinations and landmarks. So we, it's 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 also in the interest of the country that we share these great landmarks that that surround us but you just want to be careful of the commentary that might be attached to them
1: all right then that's a question as per my labor contract i must work eight hours a day however i spend nine hours in the office that includes an hour break split as 30 minutes lunch uh rest washroom tea uh people smoking cigarettes prayer that kind of thing please clarify if this is right as per the labor law rather what is the labor law for what does the labor law say about breaks during working hours Shaman is asking uh,
2: so first of all the working hours in the uae it's it's per week so the law defines them as per week and that's 48 hours per week so it's not 40 so eight hours uh, times five would be 40 hours but so a lot of people sort of make that confusion but it's actually 48 working hours how you sort of slice it, dice it you can do it within within over uh, the span of six days or five days for example but there is a one-hour uh, lunch break and um, that is um, uh, there is required uh, so and um, but I think even again, with a, with a uh, lunch break, you can it can be done in 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 sort of uh, smaller elements or small, smaller segments. So it's really for the company to decide how they want whether they want to give you a proper lunch break, one hour lunch break or half an hour lunch break. And let's say half an hour prayer time.
0: Okay, we've got a question from Vivek. This is a property one, but um, feel free to text in anything else. He says, I've finished my contract and I'm leaving um, the property. My landlord is asking me to pay a penalty of two months' rent because I informed them only a month in advance before terminating. Is it legal, as it's not mentioned in the contract, about the penalty?
2: Okay, that's a great question. So I was going to say, so, but he um, the, the listener preempted my uh, follow-up question, and that is, if it is not in the contract, then it becomes... It becomes an issue of damages, and so that is in the way you you are being told that you've um, you've terminated the contract as not 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 as per, I guess prematurely, and so if it's not in the contract, the landlord cannot just cannot just arbitrarily say, well, you owe me two months. However, if the landlord can establish that somehow because of your premature termination and lack of requisite notice. That they've suffered uh, For example loss of two months then if they can substantiate that as, as as part of the damages they've suffered Then they might have a claim But again to do that for them to even bring a case they need to first of all at least have in the contract some sort of um, Requirement about the notice you know what that notice is supposed to be so if, if it says you're supposed to do two months notice Then at least they, they might have a claim But as it doesn't even say that and certainly doesn't say anything about the penalty then legally They don't even have a, a leg to start with um, their claim but if it says two-month penalty, then ultimately you don't give them two-month penalty, so they would treat it as a breach of that particular contract, of that particular provision. But as we've discussed before on show, the show, uh, the UAE law on damages um, is always based on the actual damages. So for the landlord to actually claim the two months as a penalty, they'd have to establish that they've lost that and that you know, they've actually incurred that, um, and that damage as a result of this um, undue termination.
1: Let's try and get a couple more questions in very quickly, if we can, Ludmilla. Reasonably quick fire. This is um, uh, kind of unsavoury. Is there anything in the labour law about forced resignation and a threat to ruin a person's career if that person doesn't resign? That's...
2: Yes, indeed, and that's—it's not as clearly stated as I'm going to, but uh, as I'm about stated, it, but it's pretty well settled principle uh, in um, in the courts, and that is called constructive eviction or, or sorry, constructive termination, uh, and that is basically where you're being forced to uh, to resign either because your title has changed or you're being treated, but it has to be obviously reasonable, uh, reasonable. Uh, threat, if you will, to your career, uh, then something like that. Well, you're basically now forced to resign because of the change of circumstances or the change of how you're being treated. Um, so you would argue that that's constructive termination, and therefore you would be entitled. So it, the courts would look at it as, uh, resi- uh, as termination, not resignation, and then you'd be entitled to a three, uh, three months of uh, arbitrary dismissal.
0: Okay, Mary's text in. She says, "I recently went for a nursery teacher position. After three interviews, sent a draft copy of the contract with an agreed salary, signed and returned it. And after two weeks, I heard nothing when I called the company. And then I was told two weeks later I wasn't suitable for the position."
2: and that's interesting so this is called the breach of, of contract and and this is important because an offer letter is unlike popular belief is a contract so therefore if you were given a contract and you signed it or that offer letter uh, and you signed it that becomes a contract binding binding contract now so therefore it sounds like the now that the position is not available the contract has been breached by the other side or there's the nursery so you have an actionable claim but what you can c- uh, claim claims compensation is is basically for the course to decide and in most cases the, the The most that they would give you is, is once again, arbitrary dismissal, which is three months. uh, But they do look at arbitrary dismissal in terms of um, the length of service. So you could actually get uh, anywhere between a month and three months from the court uh, for breach of this contract. But then it's obviously, once again, economical decision or commercial decision, uh, whether it's worth it for you to pursue it.
1: All right. Those are the questions. We got a lot that we didn't get to, but we will hold those over for next week. So if you texted in or called in uh, with a question for Miller, we will come to that next week. We'll kick the show off with it then. It's uh, the legal hour. That's another week done. William Yamalova from Yamalava and Plethka. Great to have you here, and thank you.
2: Thank you. There's just so much more to hear.
1: Download our podcast at dubaii 1038.com.